New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. There are some whose major influence was the 60s. Some who went from protest of the Vietnam War, used psychedelics, marched for civil rights, traveled to India and found a guru, and then went on to make a positive contribution to the world community. Dr. Larry Brilliant is such a person. Today we'll be exploring how, at the behest of his Indian guru, Larry was inspired to join the World Health Organization to launch a program to eradicate smallpox in India. And this story of smallpox eradication is but one proof that something can be done, that little by little we can make this planet a place with less suffering. Although we are finite beings, we can still create a world with infinitely more love, more joy, and less pain. Larry's story will take us on a trip from being a radical young hippie doctor from Detroit to being inspired by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. into becoming an activist for civil rights and also protesting the Vietnam War, joining his friends from the hog farm commune when he traveled by bus from London over the Khyber Pass with his wife, Girija, at the most unlikely place, Neem Karoli Baba's ashram in the Himalayas. Many of us remember that name as the one written about in Ram Dass's seminal book, Be Here Now. Larry Brilliant is a pioneering physician, visionary technologist, and global philanthropist. He was the first executive director of Google.org, and he currently serves as chair of the Skoll Global Threats Fund. He co-founded the SEVA Foundation, whose programs and partners have restored sight to more than four million blind people in dozens of countries. He co-founded one of the first digital social networks, The Well, and he's the author of the memoir, Sometimes Brilliant, the impossible adventure of a spiritual seeker and visionary physician who helped conquer the worst disease in history. Join us for the next hour as we explore an insider's account of a changing of an age with our guest, Dr. Larry Brilliant. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Larry, welcome. Thank you, Justine. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. I think of your life 
rather like Jack and the Beanstalk. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the the Beanstalk. You 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 started your your India adventure in the most unlikely of places. You you started it with uh, assisting a birth on Alcatraz Island in the San Francisco Bay Area. Can you tell us about that beginning? Sure. I just wonder who the giant is. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We're still looking for that. Yeah. Um, Well, in the mid-60s, the radical movement that was the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, became a movement for uh, women's rights and later, latterly for gay and lesbian rights, that movement had spread to medicine. And there were a group of us who were called radical doctors. And we marched with Martin Luther King, and we all wore our white, uh, our white lab coats with our stethoscope ostentatiously dangling from the side. And I was part of that group. And uh, a number of us decided that we would do our internship in the same city. Uh, I think probably if we had been more uh, committed and less in desire of comfort, we would have done that in Trenton, New Jersey. But we decided to do that in San Francisco. So I showed up in San Francisco just about during the summer of love. And um, my internship was at Presbyterian Hospital. It's now California Pacific. And when I was finishing my internship, um, a group of Native Americans took over Alcatraz. And took over is a, probably the, even the wrong word. Uh, according to the Treaty of Laramie, any land which had been seized from Native Americans by the federal government, upon it being declared no longer needed or surplus, it reverted back to the ownership of the Native Americans. That was the treaty that we signed, but we broke it as we broke so many treaties with Native Americans. And that treaty covered Alcatraz. It should have been returned to its owners per that treaty. And a group of Native Americans thought that Alcatraz would be a fitting symbol of um, years of Native American history. And they were going to put an educational center on and make it a welcoming place for people. But the federal government didn't like that. Um, So they decided that instead they would come at night and take over Alcatraz. And that that was the takeover of Alcatraz by the Indians of all uh, tribes. Um, And that group had been there for about eight or nine months when a woman named Lou Trudell uh, was nine months pregnant and the Coast Guard tried to evacuate her off of the island and she insisted that she would give birth to her baby on Indian-liberated land. Uh, A columnist at the time, Herb Cain, began to write almost every other day, uh, there's no water, there's no electricity, there's no medicine, there's no doctor. Is there no doctor who will get off his ass and go live on Alcatraz and help deliver that baby? And, of course, that to me seemed like an advertisement. Larry, please come to Alcatraz. So I went to Alcatraz, and I stayed on the island for about three or four weeks until Lou delivered her baby. And... um, it was a magical time. Uh, she gave birth to a boy. She named him Wavoka. And Wavoka, who, the original Wavoka, had uh, lived 200 years earlier and uh, had created the ghost dance religion, 
Sitting Bull, Geronimo, had become followers, and he prophesied that he would, after he died, that he would sort of go into orbit around the world, around the earth, and then he would be reincarnated again. And when he did, the Indian way would return, the buffalo would return. And so by naming this boy Wavoka, I can feel the chills even now, uh, that was a magical moment on that island and, and a meaningful time for all of uh, the Native American community. I, I guess to bring it up to full modernity, uh, yesterday I got an email from Wavoka, and we're Facebook friends. And he's, uh, he's now about six foot four. He's an artist uh, living in Los Angeles and uh, just a, a, a wonderful kid. That's wonderful. And that put you in touch then with a group of people uh, uh, who lived in something called the Hog Farm <laughs> Commune, uh, uh, Wavy Gravy being one of the main characters in that. And, and you all then got together somehow, and there's a lot of this story, and I, I just encourage people to pick up the book. Sometimes Brilliant is the name of the book, the memoir, and you'll just you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll just be you'll really get into it. But that, through a series of events, ended you ended up in a hippie bus, so to speak. You're you're doing a concert. Um, in near London, and you're taking this bus and you're driving overland all the way to India to deliver some medicines. And um, then I, I'm going to really get us up. Again, I say that there's a long story of all of this in the book, but you end up in a most unlikely place. You end up in um, an ashram in the Himalayas in northern India. Uh, And that was a very unlikely place for you at the time. So talk about that that early arrival and what was your state of being at that point. Well, I I mean, I know that that... um the transformation sounds unusual today, but but actually going from being a, a radical to being a hippie to living in an ashram, that was the usual career path in the 60s. <laughs> That's right. Many, many people and, did it. Many people did it unsuccessfully, and many people did it successfully. So that's the point that I really want to make because – you did it successfully. And there are a lot of people that have done it that, that don't get credit for that. And I just, I just wanted to mention that. Oh, I think that that, that culture has influenced the country in, in some wonderful ways. And, and it is a culture, you're right, that is coming of age and, is, you know, and maybe even has already come of age and into power and into you know, some presidents of universities and Many of the heads of philanthropies are, are from that culture. Uh, it, it was like walking into this wonderful recording studio and seeing my friend Jerry Garcia and all the memorabilia of that time. There are places in, in the world that have been so touched by that. Um, you know, we used to say uh, that you're either on the bus or you're off the bus. That was a Ken Kesey uh, quote. And I think by that it means not literally you're either on the bus or you're off the bus, but either part of that culture or you're not. Many, a high percentage of, of young people of that time were on the bus, either physically or metaphysically. 
And that bus trip, uh, uh, which was after Canterbury, a Pink Floyd concert that was part of a Warner Brothers movie, um, we traveled through Afghanistan and Turkey and Iraq and Iran and Pakistan. And I just have to say that wherever we would go, we had two buses, 40 young people living on these two buses. Wherever we would go, I think we looked like Martians. <laughs> As we would pull up into this small village, Wavy would get out. Wavy, who's been my best friend now for 40 years, he would get out in a clown's outfit, um, and he would have bubbles to blow and toys to give away, and I would go out and I would play the doctor, and my medical equipment would come out and I'd set up a little clinic, and we'd go into tiny little villages in Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan. And if it was a Muslim village... In the center of that village, there would be an altar, but a picture of Mecca. If it was a Buddhist village, in the center of that village would be a, an idol or an image or a statue of, of Buddha. Hindu, a picture of Vishnu or Shiva. Christian, you can understand. And not all the time, but maybe two out of ten times or three out of ten times, right next to that image of Buddha or Jesus or Mecca, or Vishnu, in the holiest part of the center of the village, right next to that, there'd be a picture of John F. Kennedy. Wow. We're going to hear more about this story in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Larry Brilliant. He's the author of Sometimes Brilliant, An Impossible Adventure of a Spiritual Seeker and Visionary Physician Who Helped Conquer the Worst Disease in History. And if you want to know more about the work of Larry Brilliant, you can go to his website, LarryBrilliant.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Larry Brilliant. He's the author of a memoir, Sometimes Brilliant. And uh, Larry, you were just talking about this overland trip that you were taking to India and and about all the different religions that were represented in each of these small villages. But also there was this picture of John F. Kennedy. Now, Herman Hesse had written this book, Journey to the East, and it was sort of the organizing principle for this trip. We would go from England all the way to Kathmandu, as it would turn out, but we would stop at every church or mosque or temple or pilgrimage site, um, Buddhist vihar, and 
we were as curious as you could be about all these different traditions. And it was a surprise that in these little villages right next to the holiest of holy, we would so often see a picture of John F. Kennedy. And it makes you think of what America meant in the world in those days, aspirationally. We certainly had Vietnam. We had Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We had Japanese internment camps. We had the civil rights struggle. Not that we were by any means perfect, but, but we represented something for people in the poorest and most destitute parts of the world, almost like a, a friendly rich uncle. It's going to be a long time before there's a picture of another American president on those altars in those places, in those tiny villages. And, and my kids... My kids can't make that trip. Your kids can't make that trip today. The only way you could go to Afghanistan or Iraq is as a soldier, not as a pilgrim, as we went there. And I'm sorry about that, because that pilgrimage was the defining point of my life. So now you're, you've, you ended up in, in this ashram uh, with this guru uh, known as Neem Karoli Baba, uh, who, as I mentioned in my introduction, uh, many of us have heard that name through various ways. One of the main ways Ram Das wrote about him and be here now in his seminal book. And um, so when when you were there, I know that your wife was very devoted to him. Uh, it seemed right off very s soon after meeting him. You were not so devoted. Uh, it wasn't as easy for you. Am I correct in that? I think it's fair to say that my wife, Girja, has always been smarter than me <laughs> and uh, almost always ahead of me. Uh, and she had gone to see uh, Neem Karoli Baba. We called him Maharaji. And uh, she had gone to see him when uh, Wavy got sick. And I took him back to the United States to go to the hospital uh, for treatment. Girja stayed behind in India and went to Buddhist meditation camps and went to different ashrams. And when she got to the ashram of Neem Karoli Baba and met Ram Das and all these other uh, amazing characters, many of whom we used to call the Das brothers because it was Ram Das and Krishna Das and Raghu everybody. Um, I was back in the United States with Wavy and she was writing me and sending telegrams. It was very hard to talk on the phone in those days. You had to almost book a call three days in advance. And uh, I, I remember distinctly that I had gotten to my mother's house in Cleveland, Ohio, with these two psychedelic painted buses and wavy gravy. And we were in her uh, apartment in uh, Mayfield Heights, Ohio. And a telegram came from my wife, and it said, uh, living with Ramdas and Maharaji. And my, my mother came in, and, and I was with Wavy, and she said, your, your, your wife has left you. <laughs> She's living with this other man. <laughs> and Gerrit and I had uh, a lot of phone calls that were interrupted uh, by a war that was going on between India and Pakistan and um, by technological issues. Really hard. Yeah, you're it, talking about the early 70s. Oh, there were no just, mobile phones. There right. were no... No, nobody had phones in their houses. No in such thing as the internet. No, yeah. no. Uh, but but what Gurdjieff said is, I won't come home. You come here. Ah. Uh. And we negotiated for about three months until Maharaji had said it was getting too dangerous in India because Pakistan was bombing 
uh, India and, and near the Taj Mahal where one of his ashrams were. And so he said all the Westerners had got to go home, and he told Girija, go bring the doctor, which was me. But he didn't say that to me. He said to her, right. go back and get him. So she said she would come back to the United States if I promised that after we paid off our debts and settled our affairs and got rid of our apartment in San Francisco, that we that I would come back with her to, to meet Maharaji. And I did it. Um, and I tried. I mean, we... The first day I walked into the ashram, there were all these idols and everybody was bowing down to them and they were touching this guru's feet and that didn't exactly fit with my Jewish background. And it was a weird setup as I looked at it. I thought, I thought that she, my wife had been um, kind of seized by a cult and exactly. I thought maybe I needed to find out where the local deprogrammer was. <laughs> but of course it turned out differently. Um, after I had had some difficult moments and uh, told her that I was going to leave. And I had been on a, I told her one day that I was not feeling well. And that was really true. I was heart sick. And I went out on a lake near the ashram, Nanital Lake. And I was trying to find, I was so depressed because leaving this guru would mean leaving my wife. I knew that she wasn't going to leave him. Um, and I started to pray. And I think it was the first time in my adult life that I had actually prayed. I didn't know how, <laughs> but I prayed. I asked for a sign, and uh, I, I, I was struggling with God. I said, it doesn't have to be a big rainbow in the sky. Just a little rainbow and an oil slick on the water would be enough, but nothing. And uh, that night I told Gerja that I was going to leave. And we separated our belongings into two orange backpacks. And the next morning... I mean, we were crying and hugging each other and crying and hugging each other. Uh, she said, uh, you're going to leave, but will you at least come and say goodbye to him? And I said, sure, I grew up in the Midwest. I mean... It's a polite thing to well, do. It's a polite thing to do. I'm not going to stay. So we got a taxi, which drove us to the ashram. I told the taxi driver to wait with my backpack in the taxi because I thought this was going to be a very brief goodbye. And we got there just early enough that we had the first seats in front of the bed that Maharaji sat on, a tucket, actually, it was called. And the, um, the villagers had taken apples and flowers and arranged them on the bed in what's called a mandala. And uh, they had made the apples so that they formed the name of God, Ram, R-A-M, but in, in Sanskrit, in Devanagari. And one of the apples had fallen off onto the ground. And in my tradition at the time, it, it was wrong that the name of God should be incomplete. So I bent down to pick up the apple thinking that I would put it and complete the mandala and return the name of God to its wholeness. And as I reached on to get the apple... The doors burst open and Maharaji, like an opera singer arriving on the stage, <laughs> leaped out and saw me with my hand on the ground and immediately stepped on my hand. <laughs> and so here I am doing the thing that I wanted to do least in the world, which was to touch an Indi old Indian's foot. foot. And he pinned me down with his foot. I thought he weighed a thousand pounds. I couldn't get it out. I couldn't get my hand out from his foot. 
And he was looking at me, and he was laughing and laughing. And I didn't think it was so funny. I mean, <laughs> it probably hurt. A very yeah. awkward situation. For me. And he's laughing and laughing and laughing. And then he says, in Hindi, because we spoke Hindi, learned, we, we studied Hindi in San Francisco to be able to understand him. And he said, um, you were not here yesterday. And I'm thinking, oh, well, at least thank God he noticed, because <laughs> he hadn't said a word to me. And I, I was feeling I didn't belong there. And then he said, uh, where were you yesterday? And he began this series of inquiries, uh, which seemed rather usual. Where, you know, were you out horseback riding? And then he looked at me and started laughing. He said, were you talking to God? And then he, he did this thing that he would do, pretending to be a fortune teller, put his <laughs> hand by his head and looked up into the stars. And he said, did you ask for a sign? And when he said that, my back lit up like a Christmas tree and my fingers tingled and I got lightheaded and it, everything changed. It, it, the, it, the world seemed to be all tingly and I looked up at him and he was just looking up into the sky and I could see that it seemed to me that he loved everybody and he looked at me with such compassion and he reached down started playing with my beard and pulling it and I could just feel so much love. I, I'd never felt that kind of love before. And, and and then, you know, my mind was kind of racing and the scientist in me was saying, well, it's, you know, it's okay that he loves everybody in the world. That's his job description. He's a guru. And then I suddenly started to love everybody in the world. And I, I was almost saying to myself, oh, this is not right. This body was not made to love everybody. In the, what's going on here? Am I having a heart attack? My, my, my heart seems very warm. <laughs> and he wouldn't release me. And then he looked at me and I felt like I was home. And then he pulled my beard. He said it, slapping my cheek. And he said, Dr. America, you're Dr. America. As if he had just given me a name. And as soon as he did that, all the other Das brothers who were around, who would be kind of hanging out in the back to see how this thing would go, uh, and all the, the ashram women, would, they all came and circled me and hugged me, and that was my initiation. And I had read in all the old Indian texts about the guru's initiation. I thought that there was some bit of Sanskrit that you would read and recite and get a grade on or something like that. <laughs> but this was my, my initiation into the community of people who were searching for God, who were trying to understand what God means and what life means. And we began on a daily basis, well, they had already, for years, on a daily basis, been reading the Bhagavad Gita, the Ramayana, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Dhammapada, the Buddhist, Buddhist holy books, the books from Taoism and Islam, the Quran we were reading, everything trying to read all the great religions. And Maharaji would every day uh, have a what was called a darshan. It, it, it's almost the same word as an audience when you think of the Pope giving an audience, except darshan means vision, audience means hearing. And he would ask questions, he would have us read passages from the books that we had been reading, he would tell us aphorisms, he would mostly joke and make us laugh and... Uh, give us tea and sweets. And we called the secret teachings that he gave us the secret 
lessons. We call it the five-limbed yoga. And it was love, drinking tea, eating sweets, dancing around and gossiping. <laughs> and it was a just, it was such a joyous time. Wow. Wow. That's the beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that beautiful. Uh, it's like a transmission that, that he, he gave, I think some might call it. Um, I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Larry Brilliant, and he's the author of his uh, of a memoir, among many other accomplishments, but he's the author of a memoir, Sometimes Brilliant, The Impossible Adventure of a Spiritual Seeker and Visionary Physician Who Helped Conquer the Worst Disease in History. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Larry Brilliant, and he's the author of a memoir, Sometimes Brilliant. And Larry, I I know that that Maharaji gave you the assignment, the preposterous assignment of joining a team of people to eradicate smallpox in India. And I just want to say a bit about smallpox, because I, I know that you have this also in your book, and I've gotten this from there, that you compare, you you do a comparison. You say, like, in the 20th century, if you just take that, that 20th century, those 100 years, maybe 150 or 200 million people died from a combination of wars, genocide, and disease. So that's pretty big. All right. But then you also talk in that same period of time, a half a billion, 500 million people died of this horrible, horrible disease, smallpox. And your guru (laughs) suggested, here's the last bastion in the world of smallpox in this populous country that is just... It it's not well organized in some ways, if I may say that, and 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 he's saying it will be eradicated, and you will be part of it. Uh, uh, okay, so let's hear a bit about this impossible. It, it, I think of like Persephone or, or is it Psyche? Psyche getting, you know, she's having to sort the seeds overnight or, or uh, it, it's one of, it's like a fairy tale or a myth that this can happen. Can you help us understand? You know, one of the things I think about is when you and I, Justine, came to San Francisco just around the summer of love uh, in the 1960s, Every year, three million people died from smallpox. During those days that we were cavorting at Haight-Ashbury, and and it 
that kind of puts it into perspective how little we knew about the rest of the world, and particularly the last home of smallpox, these four countries that in 1972 remained with smallpox, India, Bangladesh, Nepal, Pakistan. They had something called variola major. There was another kind of smallpox, variola minor, that probably infected as many people, but only killed one out of a hundred. Variola major, killer smallpox, killed one out of every three who got the disease. During the time I was in India, there were a quarter of a million children who got smallpox. And it was a terrible, I mean, words failed me then and they fail me now. But you would see children, sometimes we would drive into villages and our Jeep had a big official-looking United Nations seal on it. And sometimes mothers would come up to me and bring me a baby and push that baby into my arms and say, Doctor, UN doctor, heal my baby. And if the baby was still alive, there was nothing that you could do. Once and the disease was contracted, there, that, there that was, was there's... hardly anything even to give comfort. I mean, there was no medicine in the villages, or no emergency rooms, no ambulances. And most of the time when I was given that baby and put into my arms, the, the baby was already dead. And that, that happened so many times that those images of those children have merged in my, my memory into a continuous graph of suffering. And there was one place, one railway station that I went into called Tatanagar, where there were dozens of bodies stacked like cords of wood. And children, I mean, it looked like a scene out of Hieronymus Bosch painting or Dante's Inferno. And I was 28 or 29 and way over my head. And, and it was, you said it was improbable. It was improbable that I could ever be hired by the United Nations. Um, I was in my mid-20s. I had never had a job, except I graduated from medical school and done an internship. I immediately ran away with the circus, the, the hog farm. <laughs> and I had no training other than that. And the, the World Health Organization and the UN only hired professors. So I was younger by two decades than most of the people that I work with. They were all delegated, deputed, the UN calls it, from the Center for Disease Control, CDC, or NIH, or the Marinkova Laboratory in, in Russia. I'm the only person in the history of the United Nations whose papers said, deputed from the Hanuman Monkey Temple in the Himalayas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very proud of that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> There's a story I, I just want you to tell because it's so amazing that you, you, you're talking about being in uh, ta, uh, Tatanagar, the city of the Tatas. Okay. And you go to the health official and you see that he's just sitting there in his library alphabetizing his books when all of these bodies that you describe are piled up like just the horrible devastation of it. And you, I call it righteous anger, <laughs> righteous anger. You got really this youngster because really you're, you're not, you're not even 30 yet. And you 
decide to, I'm going to go to the top guy and I'm going to find out what's going on and, and he's going to know the truth about the, the way that this disease is being spread out from this train station all over India. And uh, so if you can describe that story of knocking on the door of one of the uh, high officials of this, it's, it's like a Pittsburgh town. It's, it's a company town. It is, and and actually, the it was uh, it was built by Kaiser Steel, um, and the the colony where many of the executives lived was called the Kaiser Colony. American uh, engineers had come there to help build it, and uh, I, I was righteously indignant. I was also young and impetuous and kind of dumb, um, but it I could I, I didn't know what to do. There were uh, two thousand cases of smallpox in this one town, which is smaller than San Francisco. And they said that the rivers were not run because of the bodies that had been um, put, put into the rivers. And um, it, was a, it was horrible. And I couldn't contact WHO. I didn't have a phone or there was no... And I knew that, the, that hundreds of these young men who had come to this Pittsburgh of India... Tatanaga were coming there because they could get a job there. They could work in the steel mills. They could work in the coal mines. But they didn't get to do that job. They sat next to somebody who had smallpox. Two weeks later, they contracted smallpox. They found themselves sicker than they'd ever been in their life. They were young, unemployed men, and they were all men. And when they got that sick, they only had one thing in mind, which was to go home to die. So they'd go to the railway station. Sometimes they would die at the railway station. But if they didn't, they would get on a train and they would take that disease back to their towns and reseed it all throughout India and Bangladesh and Nepal and the neighboring countries. And I knew I had to stop it, but I didn't have any real authority. The WHO role was a consultative role. But I was really mad and um, young and impetuous. <laughs> And I asked, uh, who is the head of the city? And they said, well, there is no head of the city. I said, well, who's the head of the Tatas? And they said, well, the biggest Tata company here is called Tata Iron and Steel. And the head of that is named Rusi Modi. I said, where does he live? And no one knew. And I asked, I just assumed he would have to live in the Kaiser colony. And I, uh, I went with my paramedical assistant who was really my smallpox guru, Zafar Hussein, and we went and we went door to door in the Kaiser colony. We looked crazy. And where is Rusi Modi? And we were told where his house was. And uh, by the time we got there, it was midnight. And I went up to the door of the CEO of the largest company in India, <laughs> and I pounded on his door, and his butler opened the door and said, come back, you can't see anybody tonight. And I pounded again, and they let me in, and two big dogs came up to me and grabbed one each of my hands and held me there. And Rusi Modi, wearing pajamas, came up, uh, and he had been eating dinner. They ate dinner very late in India. And he looked at me and says, who the hell are you? What do you want? What are you doing in my house? It's midnight. <laughs> he made a lot of sense. But I said, your company is spreading death all over India. What are you talking about? I said, you're exporting smallpox. You're not exporting steel. You're not, you're exporting smallpox everywhere in India. He said, what are you talking about? What is, what do you, I said, there's smallpox. There are people dying in your city and you don't know it. He said, who the hell are you? 
And I said, I'm a WHO medical officer. I didn't look like one. I know I didn't <laughs> no, look like one. You were pretty young, scruffy. <laughs> and he person. said, well, wait a minute. Come sit, have dinner with us. And when I said that WHO medical officer and the smallpox, you're exporting death, and he had me sit down with the person he was eating dinner with was Sujit Gupta, who became my closest friend in India. And, and in the end, the Tatas, who I thought of as this demonic capitalist, thinking of my own experience back in the 60s. The they Tatas, out, which are a group of companies. They, they were the largest company in Asia at that time, yes. a conglomerate. Well, they were, um, turns out they were Parsis. They were Zoroastrians from Persia who had immigrated into India. And they were the kindest people. They, they would say about themselves, Parsi, thy name is charity. It means charity. And far from being the worst, they were the best of the companies in India. And Rusi Modi just did not know. And, and that's true. They didn't they didn't no. know it. Nobody had been able to break through or... You, or. you know, Bernie Sanders said that most of the rich people in the, in the industrial successful cities, they just don't know what it's like for everybody else. And, and that was so true for the aristocracy of the Indian company. But I have to tell you that what Rusi did and his boss, J.R.D. Tata, wonderful man, what they did is they gave me what would now be the equivalent of millions of dollars, 500 jeeps, thousands of workers. They stopped exporting steel. They stopped digging coal for almost six weeks. And every person who was working for Tata Iron and Steel or Tata Electrical Locomotive or Tata Tube Company, they became a smallpox worker. It, it's so amazing to, to, to read that story and then to hear you tell it. It's like... It's like a, a, a campaign worthy of General Patton. I mean, they just, they just, all of their resources then, and that the quick way that a company can just move it and get things done. I know how impressed you were uh, and how much you learned in that whole process. Well, it's, it's why I accepted becoming the head of Google.org and I work with Salesforce.org. Not that I'm naive about companies or the incentive for profits, but, but, but there is an ability in the civil, in civil society to make a public-private partnership with governments. And this was the first one in India. The, the, they actually created a, a formal public-private public partnership to eradicate smallpox. I'm here with Dr. Larry Brilliant and having a brilliant conversation. Uh, he is the author of a memoir, Sometimes Brilliant, and if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, LarryBrilliant.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Larry Brilliant. He's the author of a memoir, Sometimes Brilliant. And Larry, I know that um, in in breaking the rules and working kind of around the systems and doing the best you can, I know that there was a time that you really kind of crossed the line. And Indira <laughs> Gandhi, Mrs. Gandhi, the premier of India, had to make an example, and she decided, okay, it's time to send Larry home. <laughs> That's going to be my decree. And uh, can you describe what happened there? Well, it was at, uh, it, it was because of Tathanagar, and I had arranged to quarantine the city. I was so afraid of all these young people with the disease, carrying it everywhere else. Um, and the right thing to do epidemiologically is quarantine the city. And I did that, and I stopped the trains from going. I got the superintendent of police to issue a, a writ uh, and the railway minister to issue a writ. Um, but some of the people were very angry that a young Westerner had done that. I didn't have any right to do it. And one of the people who was told he couldn't leave the city unless he was vaccinated was a member of parliament. He called his cousin, who was the chief minister, who called Mrs. Gandhi and said, I want you to throw WHO out of India. Mrs. Gandhi had a cabinet meeting to decide whether to throw WHO out of India. Well, that was a very serious. That seemed, that seemed a little extreme. So they, they, they agreed on what seemed like a very modest course of action, which was to throw me out of India <laughs> and uh, give me what was called a quit India notice. It would have been a minor diplomatic ripple, but everybody except me would have gotten over it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, after she had issued the quit India notice and was ending that meeting, um, uh, the commissioner of health, who was called Dr. M.I.D. Sharma. Really interesting. Yesterday, I got a note on Facebook from his daughter, and I, this was a man I loved so much. I used to call him Papa. And the reason I used to call him Papa, and he used to call me Sonny, was that after Mrs. Gandhi had had the, told the uh, minister to issue the Quit India notice, M.I.D. Sharma took her aside and said, Madam Prime Minister, could I have a word with you? And she said, yes, Dr. Sharma. He was a hero. He'd won the Padma Shri. And she said, yes, Dr. Sharma, what is it? He said, Madam, you can, of course, do anything. You're prime minister. But before you kick Dr. Brilliant out of India, would you just delay for three days? And she said, well, yes, Dr. Sharma, I will. But why? And he said, because, Madam Prime Minister, if you delay three days, I will adopt him. Then you will not be able to kick him out of India. <laughs> well, that created quite a stir. But it led to Dr. Sharma explaining to Mrs. Gandhi that there were a quarter of a million children with smallpox and that she was being deceived that things were going well and that what I had done, although it was really unorthodox and over the top, it was because of this desperate feeling that the international community had and most of the Indians working in the program that if the epidemic raged out of control. More and more children would die. More exports from India would go to London and Japan. And that India would actually become quarantined and a pariah nation. And Mrs. Gandhi understood that. And she undid the Quit India Notice. I actually met her. But M.I.D. Sharma called me in after this confrontation and said, Larry, I think that from now on, I'm going to call you Sonny. And I said, what are you talking about? And he told me the story, and I was, I, I couldn't speak that he had offered to adopt me. 
But from then on, he did call me Sonny, and I called him Papa. And the program changed because Mrs. Gandhi had been confronted by this noble, wonderful man. And after we had eradicated smallpox, he wrote a book about it, and he listed the 20 reasons that we had succeeded, and they were all they all began with the letter R. And he said, well, first was Ram, God in Hindi. The second was Rahim, which is the Arabic, another Arabic name for Allah. The third was the rains, which came and reduced the incidence of And fourth was the rules and regulations. And then fifth was the routine breaking of rules and regulations. <laughs> that was and, that, and that's when he said, see Larry Brilliant. <laughs> oh, fabulous. Oh, fabulous, fabulous. So, uh, you know, uh, I... It, I know that you were able to go to the state of Bihar and actually be with the young woman who was the last victim of smallpox. And I know you hold her in your heart. And, and if you can describe what that was like. Sure. This is a, a young girl at that time uh, named Rahima Banu, and it was in Bangladesh and on the island of Bola Island, which ironically was where the cyclone had hit in 1972 that was the reason we took our buses from London, carrying all this medical supply and trying to be the hippie Red Cross. And um, Rahima Banu was the last case of variola major. And you can't help but be with her in this tiny little village in the middle of an island in the middle of the Bay of Bengal and not think of all the people throughout history who have had smallpox and died of it, the 500 million in the 20th century, the 25 kings and queens who died of it, no matter how rich they were. We are really all in it together, especially when you're talking about a disease like smallpox. You know, Larry, one of the themes, it seems to me, in the book goes goes over and over that that balance between being and doing. That, that's been a struggle, it seems to me, from the way that the book is written for you and for many people that you know, uh, that, that being an activist out in the world and being a spiritual person. And, and it's like this push and shove and warp and woof. And can you say something sure. about that? You, you know, yoga, it, which we all think of when we think of people doing asanas is, is a word which means to union with God. It's like unity, the, the Unitarians. It, it literally means to yoke. Yoga means to yoke, to tie your, your small soul, your heart, your atman with God, the big, the big soul. And in India, there are many different ways and practices and disciplines by which you try to merge yourself and join with God. Thousands of kind of different yogas. We know one in the U.S., but there's Ashtanga Yoga and Raja Yoga and Jnana Yoga and Karma Yoga and Nishkam Karma Yoga. And my guru taught me a kind of yoga which is to work in the world to help alleviate suffering without attachment, either to the results or to yourself doing it. And he, he told me to go work in the smallpox program because he said that God would eliminate this one form of suffering to, to kind of relieve that one burden on humanity. And that my job was to try to work in my heart inside 
to rid myself of anger and hatred and become more equanimous in the process, offer to God the work that I did and not take credit for it or make a big deal out of it. That reminds me of a story that that after this was over, after the eradication was successful, and you ended up still kind of in turmoil because as you describe all these bodies, all these people, you hold all of these in your heart. It's like this one continuous picture of all these people who suffered. And so you ended up in a retreat with Gorinka, mm-hmm. who was one of your first meditation teachers. And you you just you're you're feeling agitated yourself, but you're holding a lid on it. And uh and Goinka said something just so beautifully when that retreat was interrupted. Uh, I'd love for us to kind of go out with that story because I think it really is significant for these times right now. Well, the only way that I made it through the smallpox program, because my guru had died, was I would go to the churches that were there, a Jesuit church. I would go to ashrams, Buddhist vihars, Hindu temples, old Jewish community that was still in India, hang out with um, Sufis. And... uh, this one time, very close to the end of smallpox, we were at a Jain monastery with Goenka teaching a meditation course, and he would always chant, uh, uh, Bevite Sabmangalam, may all beings be happy. And he tried to teach us equanimity. And after we'd been there in silence for seven days, a young kid broke in the back door and screamed out, Goenka, what makes you say you're so fucking pure? And he yelled at him. This was our teacher, and we were all agitated. And uh, nothing happened. The kid left, and two days later, Goenka said, you may wonder why I didn't do anything with that interruption. And he said, because you're here to learn equanimity. And what that young man did is he gave you a gift to teach you how to become equanimous. If you'd wanted to learn to drive a car, if he lent you his car, you would say thank you. He lent us his anger. That will teach you equanimity. So the lesson for us and the lesson that you took away with that, does it give you optimism for the, for the future? Oh, I have to be an optimist. Uh, I saw the last case of killer smallpox after seeing hundreds, thousands of children die from that disease. I went from seeing this horrific Hieronymus Bosch scene to a world free of smallpox and so quickly. And my guru in some improbable way said that that would happen and, and, and predicted it. So I believe the world is so much more interesting than we think it is. And uh, that's what gives me absolute optimism. Larry, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Larry Brilliant. He's the author of a memoir, Sometimes Brilliant, The Impossible Adventure of a Spiritual Seeker and Visionary Physician Who Helped Conquer the Worst Disease in History. And if you want to know more about the work of Larry Brilliant, you can go to his website, larrybrilliant.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. 
This is program number 3601. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Please visit us at newdimensions.org, where you can subscribe to our weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. That's newdimensions.org. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. Since 1973, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge of culture, the arts, science, health, psychology, spirituality, and a host of other fields. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.